and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, November 27th, 2022. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Jenna Tessa Fox, Peter Felicia, and Michael Portantier. Jenna has written about theater for many publications, including Playbill Magazine, Broadway World, Time Out, and HowlRound. She's a member of the League of Professional Theater Women and a Drama Desk, and is a contributor to Broadway Radio. Hello, Jenna. Hello, James. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. Also with us is Peter Felicia. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. And I hear that it fits perfectly in a stocking. <laughs> so, <laughs> Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. And also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. And since you mentioned, uh, and I thank you, Cast Album Reviews, uh, turns out we're going to have a new contributor, and it's Charles Kirsch. Mm. Oh, how nice. Uh. A view from the teens. <laughs> those new kids, they listen to those yeah. MP3 things. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they don't even, does Charles Kirsch even have an LP? In case, for those who don't know who um, Charles Kirsch is, he's a 15-year-old boy. But I do recall saying to him, have you ever been in a record store? And he <laughs> said, I've, I've, I've been in stores that sell cds but <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, but that's about it you know he's never been in a genuine genuine dedicated record store so um but that's what happens when you're born around the turn of the century i'd love to talk to charles about the uh you, you know his experience in and oh. listening to cast albums right now because you because i'm imagining that you know charles is just about you know the same uh he's he's about the same age as my daughter charlotte and she discovers everything uh -huh. through spotify or youtube uh -huh. or online uh -huh. and things like that and you don't have the liner notes to go through yeah well uh, um i'll bring this up very quickly and that is the fact that uh, ken bloom's friend ezio peterson died and ezio's girlfriend said please just get all these cds out of my house i don't want them i don't need any money just get them out of the house so there they were a great monolith in ken's apartments and i said let's get the 10 year old boy over here because i knew him um when he was eight so anyway he came in and can you can imagine i mean all of us if we ever were faced uh, at that age with all these you know, hundreds 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 of cds he came in and he gasped and he grabbed one. He said to his mother, look, mom, Ziegfeld Follies of 1936. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. You know what there's, I mean? <laughs> there's yep. hope for the future yet. I love it. <laughs> I do too. So he is anyway. An, he is an old soul. He is. <laughs> right. All right. So. So uh, the, the three, you survived your Thanksgivings? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Got Good. That ain't bloodshed. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny. I was just talking with somebody about that. Uh, that I've never really had family drama around Thanksgiving. It's always been pretty nice and uneventful. So, yeah, you know that term they talk about the weather, relative humidity. That uh, that's what mm. happens when all my relatives get hot under the collar, and um, so tough times. All right. 
<laughs> well, you know, going to a Jewish family's Thanksgiving, it's always what you've only had two turkey legs and 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 five <laughs> slices. You need to eat more. The turkey only has two legs. <laughs> I think there was only one turkey at this table. My gosh, man. Actually, one of my nieces gave thanks at the table for the fact that we don't have any of that family drama. Mm. Yeah. And, and I said, absolutely, I second that because really some of the stories you hear, it's just. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, how did Arthur Miller not write a Thanksgiving drama uh, play? <laughs> you know? Good point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is there any Thanksgiving drama plays or musicals that uh, you can think of? There's a Thanksgiving play, uh, <laughs> play by that name. Um, it, oh, the, There's a movie. The humans. I'm sorry, I totally cut. You oh off. yeah, the humans. That's of right. Of course, yes, excellent idea. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, Peter, what were you going to say? Well, uh, isn't there? Um, is Home for the Holidays about Christmas or is it about Thanksgiving? The movie. I think it's Thanksgiving, if I remember correctly. I think so. Yeah, mm. I think so too. And uh, isn't there a line in Falsettos about uh, ruining everybody's Thanksgiving by coming out? Um, I think there's a line about that. Um, oh, I don't know that. I think so. There's some show that mentions that you know, the ruining everybody's Thanksgiving by uh, announcing you're gay at the table. So um, yeah, I do recall that as well. And how has a Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving not been converted to a musical? How is that? <laughs> yeah, even even as a junior show, you know, you would think that that would happen. But I don't know. But it's funny you say that because I just ran into someone who is a, uh, an actor. In uh, there is a, a stage version, some sort of stage version of a Charlie Brown Christmas that's mm-hmm. touring oh, around. Sure. I don't sure. know if you know that. No, no. He said it's going to be, I think he said it's going to be at, now what's the name of the theater now? The one in Times Square. um, The The Snapple Center? The the one that used to, was the Nokia for a while? Nokia, right. Yeah, you're right. right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's coming there. Yeah, I did hear that. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Yeah, we know. (laughs) So, you know, who would have been an interesting Thanksgiving? What? You know, sitting around the... uh, the Capulet table. <laughs> or the Montagues. <laughs> or the Montagues. Or sure. maybe the Montagues and the Capulets could get sure. together yeah. You know, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and have a Thanksgiving special. Yeah, but right. um, Michael and I last week talked about Anne Juliet. And this week, Jenna and Peter have seen it. So, Jenna, why don't you start us off with Anne Juliet, the musical sure. at the Sondheim Theater? Yes. Yeah. I, I spent the, uh, the first three songs of this show thinking, what the hell? And <laughs> then I just shrugged and said, eh, what the hell? Uh, the show is this dizzying mix of high camp and bubblegum pop music that is just perfect for the jukebox musical age. And in a really nice touch, as you enter the theater, there's a jukebox center stage with a spotlight on it. <laughs> I mean, that, it, it, <laughs> this that kind of lampshade hanging just sets the tone for the rest of the show. It's going to poke fun at all the tropes and all the cliches and then just spin them. Uh, Michael gave a great synopsis for the show last week. I don't really need to add too much there in case you missed that. The musical just imagines what would happen if Juliet did not kill herself over Romeo, but instead went out with some friends and her nurse and had some adventures. Uh, That would be amusing enough in its own right, but the framing device of the show adds another layer with Anne Hathaway, that Anne Hathaway, uh, debating (laughs) William Shakespeare about the limited options that girls have in life and gender roles and choosing life over death and some surprisingly heady topics given the the music. Uh, You know, 
like Michael, I am not the target audience <laughs> for this show. Uh, I smiled when you said that last week, Michael, because I absolutely sympathize. You know, I, I can't say I'm a fan of Max Martin's pop songs. They never really spoke to me. It's not my style of music. But the people who do enjoy these songs can get to experience them in a really different way than, say, you know, Mamma Mia. Um, in Mamma Mia, Dancing Queen is a, a fun number, whether it's, you know, if the song is in a concert or if it's used to cheer Donna up, uh, you know, it doesn't change the, the, the song's emotional arc. Does Dancing Queen have an emotional arc? Whatever, point me. <laughs> um, and Juliet's first song turns, uh, first moment turns, I want it that way, into an argument between <laughs> Hathaway and Shakespeare. <laughs> so it puts the song in a totally new light. I still can't say I like the song, but I like what David West Reed's book did with it. And I really agree with Michael that Reed's book can get thin in some places, but it really feels like a quibble. The show moves so quickly and with so much energy that if one moment isn't quite working, you shrug and say, oh, what the hell? Mm. Uh, The cast is just uniformly excellent. I want to give... I want to give all of them actually an extra shout out because I caught a matinee and I can generally tell when actors are saving some energy for the evening performance. Mm. And every one of them was giving it their all on the day I attended. So to anyone who was at the eight o'clock curtain that night, I really hope the performers weren't too tired, but they did a beautiful job at the matinee. Uh, Lorna Courtney is just utterly winsome as Juliet. She sings the pop songs beautifully with plenty of emotions, Betsy Wolf and Stark Sands are wonderful foils for one another as Anne and William, respectively. They balance humor and a lot of witty banter that feels like a a 1940s screwball comedy or even a Shakespearean comedy like Much Ado with some moments of surprising poignancy. Paulo Schott, Tony Award winner, Paulo Schott. <laughs> He's done so much dramatic work on operatic stages and you know, in South Pacific some years ago when he won his Tony Award. He gets to shine in this great comic turn, and he has a dance moment that just has to be seen to be believed. <laughs> uh, I, all the pictures I've seen of him in costumes for these grand operas, and never did I expect to see what he to see what I saw on the stage of the Sondheim Theater. Uh, Melanie LeBarry steals every moment she's on stage as Juliet's nurse Angelique, uh, who alternates being the straight woman for some of the wild energy around her and then being a comic foil in her own right. Uh, she is really terrific. Uh, Justin David Sullivan is a highlight as Juliet's non-binary friend May. May could be a one-joke character, but get some of the show's uh, more powerful material. Uh, and I can't make any informed opinions about the representation of non-binary characters in musicals, but at least to this uh, cis woman, I thought the creative team and Sullivan did really lovely work to make May as funny and as compelling as Juliet herself. So big cheers to Sullivan for that. Uh, Luke Shepard's direction and uh, Jennifer Weber's choreography 
do an awful lot to keep the pace moving and keep the energy up. Both fit the pop music really well, and I hope Weber is remembered come award time. Uh, Sutra Gilmore's uh, scenic design, Paloma Young's costumes, Howard Houston's lights also work very nicely to blend Renaissance England with modern tastes and modern sensibilities. When the lines get blurred, it's all in the best possible ways. Uh, I'm not going to say And Juliet is great art. Uh, For all its analyses of gender roles and empowerment, for the most part, it's about as deep as a puddle. But I was absolutely entertained. I was happily entertained. And, you know, if I get a chance to go back, I will take it. I will grin all the way throughout, because what the hell? I've had a lot of fun in puddles. You know, puddles can be fun. <laughs> Splash around in them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Peter, did you get wet in this puddle? Um, I, I imagine you're going to think I'm all wet. Um, but um, <laughs> all right. The, <clears throat> the crux of it came to me when they're all going to a disco and more on that later. They're all going to a disco and they're carted. And um, everybody establishes that um, she is over 18 and can get in. And at that moment, Juliet says, I'm 14. Yes, Juliet has been established as 14 by William Shakespeare. But just as Casey likes and almost famous does not convince me that he's 15, (laughs) this Lorna Courtney does not convince me that she's 14. She doesn't try to be 14. I remember Time Magazine saying about Anne Margaret and Bye Bye Birdie. You know, she doesn't try to be uh, when you're going 15, going on 16, whatever those lines are. Um, So that's, to me, a a big problem because I would have liked to have seen a, a kid around 14 playing this part. I think that would have explained a great deal because I don't understand why Juliet isn't thrilled beyond belief when Romeo shows up alive. I didn't they love each other? I mean, well, on the other hand, a fourteen-year-old, one could assume puppy love, and (laughs) that I can understand why she would um, suddenly be moving on the way kids move on like crazy as they as they go through um, boyfriends and girlfriends at that age. That would have worked for me so much better. So I, w- I really would have loved to set it, Andrea McArdle um, in her prime um, doing this uh, show. That would have really been, I know that's impossible by terms of the fact that Andrea is not a kid anymore. But I think you know what I mean, that I would like to see somebody who usually plays Annie or Liesel, um playing this part uh, and not somebody who's substantially older and substantially more mature. The, uh, so uh, I, I don't understand why she's so upset uh, to see him and why she wants to dump him, but I would if it were a 14-year-old. Okay. Um, uh, long-time listeners know that I hate anachronisms, and my, there are plenty in here. Why are they going to a disco where a guy's got a record player and he's putting on a record? Well, right above it, it says Paris 1595. Um, so the, the jukebox, I mean, you know, so that, um, that doesn't work for me either. Um, and... Um, I have to say I always um, hate at a jukebox musical when songs are shoehorned in and the audience reacts with giggles. Um, now, I will admit that sometimes the giggles are affectionate, saying, oh, ho, 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 this is where they put that song. But I also do believe that uh, it's also a case of, oh, yeah, musicals are so stupid. This is where they're going to put that in. They think that it really fits. And so, so um, 
Yeah, um, otherwise, I'm not criticizing Laura Courtney's performance. I'm criticizing the fact that she's not 14. Uh, Betsy Wolf, phenomenal. Yes, indeed. Everybody's very good. Very good indeed. And um, beautifully produced, wonderfully produced, slickly directed, terrific in that um, situation. But um, I do believe that um, this would have been a much more interesting show if we had had kids playing Romeo and Juliet. That would have really interested me. Well, you'll have that in about five years when they start doing it in high schools. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, it may be. It may be more than five years, Michael. Who knows? You know, I mean, it, may, it, could, yeah, it, it, may be. it could be. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, yeah. these days, five years is not a long run. Right. And um, and uh, certainly the audience uh, likes it immeasurably, and so have most of the critics. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, it's there for five years. And um, I don't know how Mr. Sondheim would feel about this show in his theater, but that's another story. <laughs> Could I interject that, here? Um, go ahead. Sure. Uh, at w- when they have that moment of carding everyone, and Juliet uh, is revealed to be thirteen, as she is in you know uh, Shakespeare's text, she has not seen the turn of fourteen years. Lord Capulet says uh, they hang a lampshade on it that she's older, and Anne Hathaway freaks out that oh my God, she's a child. And says, okay, never mind. We're going to make everyone in their 20s. We're all in our 20s now. <laughs> and so, I mean, they, 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 again, hanging a lampshade on it, they age her up so that she doesn't have to be a child. And I agree, you know, the impetuousness of youth, you know, drives the original play. It drives a lot here. But again, this is blending the lines between classic and contemporary that a 20 year old today is a lot mm. younger than a 20-year-old would be at, uh, you know, certainly in the... Uh, in the Renaissance. In the Renaissance, in the 1500s. I mean, uh, Lady uh, Lady Capulet, talking with Juliet in their first scene together, comments, uh, I was your mother much upon these years that you are now a maid. So, mm. you know, Lady Capulet had Juliet before she turned 13 years old. So, obviously, a 20-year-old is very different then than now. But, you know, we look at 20-year-olds now, they're still partying in college. So, yeah, 13 then could be seen as equivalent to 20 today. Uh, it didn't bother me that they aged her up a bit. And I thought, it. well, first of all, it takes away the squick factor of a child uh, having, you know, rushing into this romance. But it also, uh, it makes it a bit more palatable, you know, to mm-hmm. have her be... It, I'll buy that. I'll buy that. That, that sounds... Um Accurate to me. Yeah, I, I can see that point. Yeah, uh, indeed. Um, but I will say <clears throat> I would enjoy um, considering the uh, the way that she doesn't care about Romeo anymore. Um, I, I see that more as a, a junior high type of thing. You know, I was thinking uh, it hadn't actually occurred to me. This this show is about what would happen if Juliet hadn't actually died. And not too long ago, we saw Romeo and Bernadette which was about what would have happened if Romeo hadn't actually died. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's, it's interesting how people take these classics and, and, you know, um, r- well, uh, uh, riff on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'm going to talk about another example soon, but, and sometimes they're done very cleverly and sometimes not, but also, I mean, obviously it's all a matter of opinion. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. So that is Anne Juliet at the Sondheim. I'll have a link to that in the show notes, plus uh, the, the 
um, as Peter had mentioned, it, it's so beautifully produced, mm. uh, and the production has provided us with such great photographs that I've thrown them in the sure. show notes as well. Sure. And you can check sure. it out there. So next up, Peter, you went over to the Vineyard Theater to where you saw Sandra. So tell us about this. Well, um, this is a one-person show, and um, it's 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 a bit. Somebody wants described it as a shaggy dog story. And I understand why that would be uh, the term that um, was used, but um, I, I took a much more positive view of it. Um, Marjan Neshat, uh, we saw her in English. We saw her recently in Wish You Were Here. And um, she's Sandra Jones. All right. She's um, a person who's uh, very much involved with a, a, a very ambitious and accomplished if not famous uh musician and they're the besties they really are he's a gay man um she's not a, a gay woman and um and they have this wonderful relationship and then he disappears genuinely disappears he's supposed to be somewhere he's not there and she really gets upset about this to the point where she goes to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, where he was last seen. So what I liked about this was the fact that I once heard during the AIDS crisis, people are doing, friends are doing for their friends what only family members used to do. Mm. And I, mm. I, I, I do believe that's true, that as time has gone on, we really have realized that um, you make your own family from your friends. And so I like the idea that she would be so concerned that she would go on this quest to find him. And um, so David Kale has, has won me over right then and there. Um, a lot of people say no woman would go to Mexico looking for a needle in a haystack, you know, but, but I like the sentiment behind it. So um she meets a, a man uh, through her friends, or so she assumes, uh, at a bar, and they get romantically involved. Uh, it gets far more difficult than that. Um, it's not the type of relationship you want to have. And as the truth eventually emerges, whoa, she realizes she's in terrible, terrible trouble. And I wonder if indeed <laughs> David Kale is essentially turning that uh, nice thing that I just said about people do for their um, friends, what they used to only do for their family on its head, because she will pay an incredible price for following this man, a price that I don't think that you will find even in your imagination. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody will see coming what this woman will have to do as a result of making this quest. Now, at the end, it's very disturbing because we're not quite sure if her friend Ethan indeed is still alive or is not. Um, there's a very, very strange thing that happens at the end that um, I don't think is very satisfying. But what is satisfying is watching Marja Neshet do so well in adopting many voices, many characters. Most of the time, she's just sitting center stage. Occasionally, she stands. There's no set to speak of. And uh, she is mesmerizing, very appealing, mesmerizing, 
very accomplished when she does her other voices, makes them true characters. So this is very much worth seeing, very much worth seeing, even if it frustrates you from time to time. But it will chill you to the bone by the time you get to the ending. Wow. So that's Sandra at the Vineyard Theater. It's uh, playing through December 18th, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Michael, you got over to The Tank to see a production of Mrs. Loman. Tell us about this. Yeah, well, as I mentioned, this this is a riff on, I guess, mm-hmm. obviously, mm-hmm. Um, Death of a Salesman. And I uh, I read the description of the show and I thought, well, this seems like it would be interesting enough to be worth a look. And I managed to c- catch the last performance, which was on Sunday, the 20th. Um, this was at the tank um, over on in that little complex on 36th street between eighth and ninth where they have uh two different theaters at mm-hmm. least i think um and uh i didn't know anything about it in advance other than i knew uh the actor playing happy um hartley parker whom i had seen in that show lilies that was at the theater center that was i think the first one of the first shows to reopen after the pandemic or to open after the pandemic. Um, so uh, that's all I knew. And I knew the premise and that was it. I uh, had not heard of the playwright, Barbara Cassidy. And I would say, um, uh, honestly, I would say this is one of the most inconsistent plays I've ever seen in terms of the quality of the writing, because some of it was really not good. And some of it was really quite a stretch and, um, and very obvious and just not very good at all. But some of it was excellent. Um, Some really, really good ideas. The basic thrust of the play is that um, it begins on the day of Willie's funeral. Uh, Mm. uh, The family come back to the house, uh, Linda Biff and Happy, along with their neighbors, Charlie and Bernard. Um, Those are the uh, five characters actually from death of a salesman whom we see in this play and you know they're talking about willie and there are references to um famous lines uh, and uh, and uh, things that we see happen in the in in the play by arthur miller and etc cetera, etc cetera. and and then um gradually as the scenes unfold some new characters are introduced and what we see basically is linda loman trying to become a modern woman uh as we would call it i guess um mm-hmm. she starts to um she decides she's going to take classes at brooklyn college mm-hmm. uh she um uh winds up being fully accepting when it turns out that biff um has been uh seeing a black woman as his as a girlfriend uh whose name is lena and he even brings her to the to the house now now remember we're talking about brooklyn in 1949 uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and so she, yes, so she's accepting of that, that woman. Um, then, uh, in one of the less effective sections, I, I thought, um, it turns out that Linda seems to be open to having a lesbian relationship with, uh, a neighbor. And, uh, so, uh, so, uh, oh, and then, and then also, and that same woman, um, introduces Linda to, uh, to marijuana and so we think she might uh start 
experimenting with drugs, at least uh, at that level. Um, so I really like the idea that that's something that would happen to Linda. I mean, we see her in the actual play by Miller. Um, it seems to me uh, a lot of the plays, uh, scenes in that play, when it's just Willie and Linda, you can see the affection between them. But sometimes when other people are around, he treats her like a dish rag. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, that's always one of the um, one of the most moving aspects of Death of a Salesman. So it's nice to think that she might, um, you know, become a modern woman embracing uh, education and, and, and all of these other things as as we move towards the 60s. Uh, so I, I really, really like that. I just thought, um, frankly, I thought there was too much of it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I didn't think we need the lesbianism plus the drug mm -hmm. use plus mm -hmm. the, the 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 classes of Brooklyn mm -hmm. College plus the you know, the the uh, the black girlfriend. Uh, any maybe one or two of those would have been interesting enough. Um, so that's my my main comment on it. I. Uh, uh, it's interesting. Uh, a lot, a lot of really interesting things happen. Things happen. Uh, I, I, I suppose this is a spoiler, but I don't know when. Yeah. Um, you know when you'll have the opportunity to see this play again. But um, uh, Happy winds up trying to sexually assault Biff's black girlfriend, yeah. uh, and I think you know if you look at it, um, if you look at the things that happen in Death of a Salesman, it's it's quite. Um, reasonable to think that that he might do something like that uh so it, it was a very smart uh very smart play in in many ways i just thought that the the author maybe tried to do a little too much but fortunately um this was all helped by really really excellent acting monique vukovic um who was one of the equity members of the company was really just superb as Linda. Uh, she is quite a small woman with a, uh, almost like a, a, a little bit of a baby ish kind of a voice, uh, like a higher pitch voice. And I don't know if I've ever seen Linda in death of a salesman played that way, but that worked really well. Um, and then uh, this guy named Matt McGlade as Biff and the aforementioned Hartley Parker as Happy. Uh, they were both excellent. And I think it seemed like everyone obviously did their research um, in, in in reading and rereading and rereading the original play uh, and informing their characters in this play. Um, the woman who played Lena uh, was really superb, Ara Celia Butler. And then... Um, I, 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 the, the fellows who played, the actors who played Charlie and Bernard, um, Charlie was Jerry Feria and Bernard was Joe Gregori. They were so good that I regretted the fact that they, um, weren't actually in this play too, too much. Um, they were only at the beginning and then they showed up a little bit later, but I, I wish they had had more to do in it. Um, so I, uh, you know, I really, I really um, was glad that I saw it. I mean, to me, uh, people are going to laugh, but to me, this this play was more effective than Clybourne Park, which is a sort of a comparison in, in terms of being a riff on a on a famous play. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I, as I say, I just got in under the wire because it was the final performance. So I was glad that I got to see it, and it'll be. Interesting to me to see um, if if this play has uh, a future. It's been done elsewhere already, uh, so I, I want to see if 
what, if anything, happens to it in the future. I'm sorry, I missed it. Now that you're talking about it. everything you're saying sounds very valid to me, including the pouring it on of too many um, incidents. But boy, mm-hmm. I have seen so many widows, including my mother, who you know, learn to dance and drink and smoke a cigarette. You know, I mean, <laughs> they really that's when they really come alive when they're liberated from their husbands. Um, so so that sounds like a great idea for a play. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. My we're suddenly remembering my grandmother's uh, great eulogy for my grandfather was my life began the day he died. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. It really is true. All right. So as Michael said that that was uh, already closed at the tank uh, through November 20th, but uh, but there are productions that happen here and there. So um, stay tuned for that. So we'll let you know if it comes back to the our area if any one of us see it. So, Jenna, you got over to the Vivian Beaumont to see Mike Birbiglia, the yes. old man in the pool. So yes. tell us uh, what you thought of this. Uh, well, I've become a big fan of Mike, Birbig- Mike Birbiglia's monologues over the years. Is it pronounced Birbiglia? I suddenly, yes, yes. Birbiglia. Yeah. It is. Okay. I wasn't sure if I was mispronouncing it. You'd think after all these years I'd know how to pronounce his name. And yet, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, I've really become a fan of his work over the years, going back to Sleepwalk with me. Uh the witty way he examines his very unique medical issues and how they affect his life make the horrifying seem not just bearable, but relatable. Uh, the last time Rabiglia had a monologue on Broadway, he was talking about impending and new fatherhood and the fears of being responsible for another human's life when maintaining your own life is such a challenge. So the old man in the pool picks up where the new one left off, with Birbiglia now the father of a young child and still dealing with a laundry list of health issues with a very wry sense of humor as one of his biggest medicines, it would seem. Uh, and The recreated conversations he has with his doctors are agonizingly funny in how goddamn believable they are. Uh, I, I kept thinking this can't be this can't be true, right? He's exaggerating. I'm not actually <laughs> sure if he's exaggerating. Oh God! Um, you know, as he tries to get his health under control so that he can be there for his daughter, he muses on mortality and family and growing older. Uh, Berbiglia is in his 40s now, and it really feels like the stakes have just gotten so much higher for him and for his family. But with his quiet, you know, frequently monotone delivery, even the more profound moments are softened with this dry, acerbic humor. And I think a lot of the laughter in the in the room could be laughter of recognition. Um, you know, we it's scary times. I was thinking about how how much has changed between the new one and between the old mm-hmm. man and the pool. We are wrapping up the third year of a pandemic that's killed more than a million Americans and that's shown a spotlight on the failings of the country's very broken healthcare system. Mm. But you know, you know what they say about a million being a statistic and one being a tragedy. In this case, Herbiglia mm-hmm. has turned what must be a very mm-hmm. scary and potentially tragic situation for him off stage into something very funny that encourages empathy on the stage. And I think that's what makes the show not just funny, but dramatically effective. Uh, 
the creative team deserves, I think, a lot of credit as well for how effective the play can be. Uh, set designer Beowulf Borat turned the Vivbo stage into a wave with pool tiles that take on new colors and shapes and dimensions from moment to moment, thanks to uh, Hannah S. Kim's projections and Aaron Kopp's lights. Uh, Seth Barish directed the play. He also directed the new one. Clearly, the two men work very well together for this style of work, for fleshing out each beat and finding the hook for each moment, whether it's a funny hook, the pause for a laugh, or whether it's this extended bit late in the show where he specifically asks the audience to be quiet. And of course, you know, don't think about elephants. As soon as someone asks you not to laugh, you can't help but laugh. And it's a great little moment that I don't want to spoil because I really hope a lot of people will go see the play and experience that. It goes on longer than it should, but it works. Uh, you know, the Old Man in the Pool is a lot of fun. Birbiglia is a wonderfully funny performer, but there is also depth to this pool. Wow, I, uh, yeah, I actually just went there. There is a deep end to this pool. <laughs> <laughs> and it's worth spending some time in there. I've been thinking about the play a lot since I saw it, and it's really worth catching. I hope uh, I hope it does well. All right. I uh, meant to ask last week, but now I get to ask again this week. So all three of you, and not just Peter and Michael, um, do you recall if uh, somebody came late to your performance and Mike took them to test for coming late? Yeah, oh, yes, I, you know, I almost I, I was going to mention that. I, I wonder if he um, if he always arranges for someone to do, <laughs> to do that, because unfortunately, you don't have to arrange for it these days. Yes, it's always yeah, somebody. That's, true. <laughs> that's true. But David Copperfield used to do that all the time, too, mm. uh, with latecomers. I do wonder, though, like if if it's happened that no one came late, would would Mike mm. just skip over all of that? I suppose. I assume so. So, yeah. 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 Um, didn't Nathan Lane do that in, in Forum? Yes. In revival yes, of Forum? Indeed. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. But I do believe David Copperfield was the first time I ever saw it, which was even before um, the forum revival. You know, I, I've seen it before in other shows, but it's yeah. it just works. Sure, it does. And of course, <laughs> a lot of people haven't had the experiences of seeing those other shows that we saw. So, yeah. so it's great fun. Yeah, and, um, <laughs> I love the and he does look good, he does it with good humor too. It's not like he's yeah. castigating them. Uh, oh, of so, course, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. So you don't want to turn the audience against you for being mean. Yeah. You know? but yeah, <laughs> yeah, James just started to mention he he does it. And then you think he's done with these right. people. And then yeah. like five minutes later, all of a sudden he like makes some comment and people, <laughs> people start laughing. Again. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, boy. So, yes, Mike Berbiglia playing at the Beaumont uh, through January 15th. We'll have a link to that in the show note in the show notes. And you can uh, check that out as well. So, Peter, you got over to 59 East 59 to see Boswell. Tell us about this. Well, all right. Um, first off, um, um, a disclaimer, uh, and that is uh, the playwright Marie Kohler uh, directed my play one, uh, Old Comiskey Park uh, a couple of years ago in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. So I do know her. But um, I would have liked this play anyway, because I, it, and I think <laughs> each of us who is here today would appreciate it as well. <clears throat> Because 
Uh, Boswell, of course, is known as the uh, person who uh, was the biographer of Samuel Johnson, who was truly a great man. Um, I mean, he wrote a dictionary. I mean, you got to be pretty good to be able to do that, even in those days when there weren't nearly as many as words as there are now. <laughs> so. All right. So what we have here is um, a, a, a woman is going to do her thesis on uh, Samuel Johnson. Uh, her name is Joan, and uh, she goes to Scotland, um, and she's going to look at all these manuscripts. And what's so interesting is that whenever she comes across anything by Boswell, and she has the chance to see plenty of Boswell, um, she's she's not really interested in that. She wants to get to Samuel Johnson, you know, and she doesn't want secondhand information from, uh, from Boswell. No, uh, just give me the real meat of the matter. And little by little, she realizes that there's great worth in historians. And that's the crux of the play that becomes so fascinating. She, uh, her, her attitude completely changes when she realizes we wouldn't know nearly as much about Johnson if we didn't have Boswell. That may sound simplistic, I'll grant you that, but nevertheless, the way it, Marie Kohler peels away the layers to get to this point is very, very, very skillful. So I appreciated that quite a bit. Um, I wish I could be more enthusiastic about the woman who plays Joan. I thought she was a little too cutesy, poo. But um, Boswell, played by Josh Krause, marvelous. And um, Brian Manny is Samuel Johnson, this great man who knows it and um, isn't going to let you forget it, um, is terrific as well. Um, unlike the um, Mrs. Lohman, this one's still running. You have till December 4th to see it. Mm. Granted, that's not that much time, but nevertheless, uh, you can go see it at 59, East 59th. This is at one of their small theaters upstairs. If you've never been there, there's a main stage, but there are also a couple of smaller theaters upstairs. Um, I doubt there this seats um, any more than 50, 60 people, so um, it may not be that easy to get into. But it is worth seeing. There's a, a marvelous set with one flaw. I think it's a flaw. I think it's a flaw. But I hate when people use Reader's Digest condensed books um, as part of the set, especially when we're <laughs> supposed to, you know, I mean, this is supposed to be a place where um, there are all these ancient manuscripts. And so I think that was there in the set. Um, I can't be sure, but um, I, I think I'm right about that. And so take that book off, will you please? Um, so it'll, because otherwise it really looks like this marvelous, marvelous uh, cave of, um, of uh, books from way back when. And I don't want that spoiled. Uh, so um, I, 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 the fact that there's such a nice interplay between Josh Krause Boswell and Brian Manny, Samuel Johnson, is makes a lot of great fun. And um, they talk directly uh, to us. Uh, the characters talk directly to us. Some of them do at times. And, um, and that's a, a winning type of way of doing it. But but I have to say that um, uh, I, I wish that the um, that the character playing uh, that the actress playing Joan was was somebody I could really uh, get behind and and be interested in. But she seemed very artificial to me. Mm. Enough said. All right. So that, as uh, Peter says, is Boswell through December 4th at 5090s 59. We'll have a link to that in the show notes if you'd like to check it out. So, uh, in the news this week, uh, we just heard the sad news that Irene Cara had passed away, and I didn't realize that she had uh, such deep roots in the Broadway community until I started seeing friends posting on social media all different stories about her, and 
but she has four Broadway credits that I wanted to mention. She's got uh, Got to Go Disco. She's got Via Galactica, The Me Nobody Knows, and Maggie Flynn. So, uh, Peter, have you ever seen her in anything? I saw and got to go disco, certainly. Um, I did not see the original company of me, nobody knows. I missed Via Galactica entirely. Um, it was uh, <laughs> not there very long. And um, so uh, so that was a, a problem. And no, you know, I was in <laughs> I was in town for Maggie uh, when Maggie Finn, Flynn was playing. And I almost went, but I was very intrigued by the um, idea of the play, The Man in the Glass Booth. So I went to that instead. Um, I, I still regret it. And um, because not that I've had another chance to see Man in the Glass Booth on stage, but there was a film made. So um, and um, I'm very sorry that now that I didn't see Maggie Flynn. So no, Got to Go Disco was the only time I saw her. Uh, both in a rehearsal setting as well as the show itself. And she really did her best with terrible material um, in that show. And you don't need me to tell you that Got to Go Disco had terrible material. <laughs> For those who don't even know what we're talking about, Got to Go Disco was a musical, I think, from 79. And... Um, the the word two is was spelled T U for whatever reason. Um I I don't know what the reason for that. Had a million authors. Um so many people. I don't I don't I don't mean um in the sense of um show doctors. I don't mean that at all. I'm talking about um all right, so one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven um composers. Um one book writer. Ah. So um <laughs> That's something. It's somebody I've never heard of. Lots of lyricists. Well, yeah, same thing. Uh, the book was by a guy named John Zodrow, and I don't know if he's famous, but uh, that's the only time he was on Broadway. So, um, and this was a show that postponed um, previews and openings many, many, many times. And um, in fact, for a while, it was going to open on my birthday, and I was very glad it never did. So, anyway, <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be tarred by that brush. So, but Irene Cara really did. You really think, you know. Um, much the way Walter Kerr said about Judy Holiday in um, Hotspot, a musical that didn't last long back in 1963. He said, she works so hard. She does this. She does that. Um, I don't know if any of us have the heart to tell her it isn't any good. Oh. And um, and that's that's really what um, Got to Go Disco was. But you, you, you really had to appreciate her giving her all. So um, that's how I'll remember Irene Cara. And, of course, from the fame film. I've I've never heard of Via Galactica, so I took a look at it. Uh, it was at the Eurus on November twenty eighth, nineteen seventy two, to December second, nineteen seventy two, just uh, four or five days. And uh, the setting was in the year twenty nine seventy two, so a thousand right. years into the future. So uh, perhaps we'll see that in twenty nine seventy two come back as uh, right. some sort of city center. <laughs> yeah, yeah, encore's Mars, good, right? Encore's <laughs> Mars production. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> as I think we we might have mentioned once long ago, uh, the original title of Via Galactica was up. Right. That's right. But then the legend has it that it was <laughs> <Go> changed <on. laughs> because the marquee said up yours. No. Oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, the the other factor was that this was the first show at that theater and in fact I, I always forget if it's Clive Barnes or Walter Kerr but one of them started his review by saying well there's always the theater you know so because it was a brand place. <laughs> so James Dibus, uh was in it and he has some home movies of uh, oh. the show uh, which he invited me to see one night and um and uh, it was it was very famous for having a lot of um, 
ping pong balls is that what it was um something like that oh trampolines too people um were on trampolines right. to, to suggest that they were weightless you know that type right. of thing and as everybody said all it looked like was people jumping on trampolines it didn't look like they were weightless at all um there was also a guy who stayed in a box he um he never got out of a box i forget um, what the reason was for that but um yeah but i'll tell you once again, Galt McDermott, composer, you know, it, mm. the, the music is good. Um, RCA was going to make a cast album and, of course, never did. But um, Galt McDermott did his own album, but not in the way that he did Dude, where he actually had singers. This was just instrumental music. But again, what a gift that guy had for music. He really could have been one of the great ones if he had worked with the right collaborators. And uh, yes. and, and frankly, you know, as as I said before, anytime I have an interview, it, he really gave the idea that it's my way or the highway. Um, it had to be done his way. So he seemed rather intractable. And of course, musicals were about collaboration. So, so that might have been a sticking point too. But boy could that guy write music and um mm. <laughs> there was more to him than just hair <laughs> and you can see by peter hall who's got quite a number yeah. of Broadway credits as well oh yeah oh yeah indeed yeah um but uh, not so famous for doing musicals is he <laughs> uh, there was a marvelous um um piece in the time some years ago by the daughter of George um, Granite, who was one of the producers talking about how uh, this was the show that, um, that he was convinced was going to be uh, his legacy that uh, people were going to talk about it now and forever. And, um, and how she heard about it every night at the dinner table and so on and so forth. Um, so you might want to look up that article. Um, I imagine she uses the name Granite. I don't G R A N A T by the way, not Granite like the, the uh, substance, but um but she uh, she wrote a very uh, nice piece about the fact that um, she really expected, because her father believed in it so much, that it was going to be sensational and just didn't turn out that way. So, mm -hmm. And then uh, I guess last week or so, maybe two weeks ago, I uh, uh, mentioned that we were coming up on the one-year anniversary of uh, Sondheim's passing. And Peter, you mm -hmm. mentioned that you had a Masterworks Broadway column in the works. And so... I dug it up and found it. Sondheim and he. Sondheim and, you, and uh, he. Yes. And because, uh, you talked to Paul. So Paul tell Sos us about it. Well, Paul Salcini was um, the guy who um, saw the Kurt Vile newsletter and said, wait a minute, if there can be a Kurt Vile newsletter <laughs> about a dead composer, why can't there be a, one about um, a living one and uh, somebody who's really, really, really um, uh, the, the main uh, person we're all concerned with these days. So he started the Sondheim Review and he did it for 10 years. And so this book essentially is um, the Sondheim Review's greatest hits in which he um, calls um, from many articles. And he talks about Sondheim uh, reactions to um, these articles. Sometimes uh, he was thrilled with them. Sometimes, of course, he was not. Sometimes he was incensed. Um, and um, so what? that's what it is. It's excerpts from the book. And, um, you know, I, I, I forgot about this, but I remember even hearing way back in, um, in the early 70s that Sondheim had written a song called Do I Hear a Waltz? Mm -hmm. um, am I right? Do you hear a waltz? <laughs> do, do you hear I, a waltz? Yeah. Okay. So anyway, he wrote a song called Do, I, do You Hear a Waltz for, um, for a TV show that never happened. He was going to write it with Arthur Lawrence. It never happened. But obviously, if he wrote that song the the show do i hear a waltz um must have gotten that title from from that song so we have to wonder what indeed 
the show would have been called had Sondheim never written a song called Do You Hear a Waltz? Mm. I mean, and, and who knows? Maybe it simply would have been called Summertime. There's also a, a discussion about how Oscar Hammerstein wanted to do it. He wanted to musicalize that um, the time of the cuckoo slash summertime as the movie was called. and um, But he felt it was too soon after um, the, the movie to do it. But um, that's interesting to me that... Um, Hammerstein thought it was a good idea because Sondheim has repeatedly, repeatedly said that he didn't think it was a good idea. And, um, but the fact that Hammerstein thought it was may have been a contributing factor to his saying, Oh, what the hell? Let's mm. do it. May. While we're at it, what the hell is up with the title, the time of the cuckoo? I know. Is there any, I don't know I the know. play that well, is there any reference that would indicate what that's supposed to mean? I was out of town when the um, Lincoln Center revival happened about maybe 20 years ago. No, I don't know. But um, I, I don't know. I, the book is on my shelf. You have motivated mm. me to read it. And um, <laughs> maybe, maybe by this time next week, I'll have an answer. Though, frankly, I'm engrossed with Rupert Holmes' new book. Um, so uh, so we'll see. Uh, and, and, and engrossed with unpacking boxes. But uh, that's another story. So, uh, But I know exactly where the time of the cuckoo is. I've already taken out of a box. So um, maybe by this time next week, I'll have an answer for you. <laughs> and for that matter, you might hear from uh, people who do know. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody like Rob Johnson is already texting away, telling you <laughs> what it is. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> All right. So that column for uh, Sondheim and he is linked in the show notes. If you'd like to get over and take a look at that at Masterworks Broadway. Finally, for this morning, we want to wish a very happy birthday to our own Robbie Rizal. Uh Happy birthday, Robbie. I think he's uh, I think he's 26 now. Yeah, that must be. Yeah, yeah. Just about that. Yeah. Happy birthday, Bobby. Happy birthday. Indeed. Great guy. Bobby, mm-hmm. Robbie, Robbie. And for his <laughs> and f- for his birthday, he sent me a bunch of CDs. Is that right? Oh, wow. Is that how that works? So happy, happy, happy birthday, Robbie. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's our birthday, but you get the present, as the stores always say. Yeah. With that, that wraps it up for this morning. Before we get on to trivia and the musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen as many ways. Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Jenna, for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to the, some of the things we've talked about today and those great production photos that they've sent along to us. So, Peter, we have an answer for last week's trivia. What character in the Tony-winning musical made a financial estimate for the year 1959 before another character in the same show did one for 1964 and another one for 1974? Well, Prez in the 1954 musical The Pajama Game estimated what he could buy in five years if he were given a seven and a half cent raise. Babe Williams quickly followed with her 10 and 20 year estimates. Steve Bell was the first to get it, followed by Josh Israel, Mike Meany, J. Aubrey Jones, Jack Leshner, whom I failed to acknowledge. Um, he got the court jester one the week before. My apologies, Jack. You really deserve better. I am sorry. Uh, <laughs> Jeff Valanga, Brigadude, Deb Popple. Ingrid Gammerman, Cameron Weston, Robert Lobiando, and bringing up the rear, finishing dead last in 12th place. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. 
Tony Janicki. <gasps> oh, well, let's see if he can do better this week. In this play's Boston tryout, it had a different title than the one it acquired before it was a smash hit on Broadway and a Pulitzer Prize winner. At first, it was named for what this character was. In the end, the play simply used the character's name as its title. What was the original title? What was the eventual one? Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, our music this week is from the new Broadway cast recording of Funny Girl, which is not uh, available in physical form yet, but you can get it just about every other way, including uh, you can listen to the entire thing on YouTube if you don't mind commercials. Um, so that's that's what I did. Um, and it's I, I, I think it's a really great album. There's been much discussion uh, of the fact that the you know that this album stars Leah Michelle rather than Beanie Feldstein, and people have been saying, of course, we know there have been cases of um, of replacement uh, cast members being recorded uh, in on cast albums in a, in a few cases. Uh, two of the most famous being the Pearl Bailey Hello Dolly and the Vanessa Williams Kiss of the Spider Woman. Um, but uh, there was discussion as to whether is this the first time when a replacement has been recorded, um, but the original star has not. And um, uh, the only two I could think of were, you know, very unusual circumstances. And I'm sure probably Peter can immediately name them. No, I can't. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, um, well, again, very unusual circumstances. Uh, 1776. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and even then, I mean, he's uh, 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 Roy Poole was not a replacement. Uh, Roy Poole, is that right? No, um, no, I'm sorry. Rex, Rex Ever- Everhart. Everhart. Yeah. Rex Everhart was not yeah. a replacement for uh, Howard De Silva. He was the understudy. Right. Uh, and he recorded it because Howard De Silva had a heart attack mm-hmm. uh, right around the time of the opening. Uh, and then the mm-hmm. other example is the, the very sad one of Grand Hotel. Uh, mm-hmm. The album was made long after the show long opened, after. and and David Carroll actually died during mm-hmm. the recording session. So Brent Barrett was brought in, uh, and then I think maybe someone else named another obscure example that I don't know about. But le- anyway, let's just say it's very, very, very unusual for a cast recording to be made not with the original cast but with a replacement, uh, and. Uh, I have to say, I think it sounds really good. Some people have said that they didn't think it sounded like the orchestra uh, in the of the theater has been beefed up at all uh, for the recording. I have to disagree. I, I think it, the, the orchestra sounds really good on the album, whereas it did not in the theater. Um, so I don't know if they did it by actually adding musicians or I suppose now they can double. Um, mm, yeah. Uh, I, I, although I wonder if the musicians union allows that. Um, Anyway, uh, to me, it sounded much better. The orchestra sounded much better. And Leah Michelle, uh, you know, whatever you think about her uh, reported behavior in the past, um, I think she sings it really, really, really well. And only occasionally um, do I feel like she's uh, like going out of her way to ape 
Streisand's inflections on certain lines. Um, for the most part, she avoids that. And I give her big props for that because I think that must have been difficult uh, for her to avoid that since uh, she's gone on record as, you know, uh, as loving that performance and having it stamped into her brain from the, uh, I guess, more from the movie uh than from the original mm-hmm. cast recording. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, uh, and then you also get Tova Felcha uh, on this mm-hmm. album, which is fun. Uh, I- interesting though that the, the uh, she sounds really good, but they sounds like they really had to bring the keys way way down for her. Uh-huh. Uh, her her voice seems to have lowered um, significantly over the decades, which is fine, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think they had to do some reorchestration uh, of this uh, from when Jane Lynch. Uh, did the part I, I could be wrong about that but that's how it sounds to me um i i would say this album is much more enjoyable than i ever thought it would be and i really uh i th- think it's a worthy addition you know to the discography so our opening music is uh mm-hmm. the beginning of the overture mm-hmm. uh so you can hear uh for yourself if you think the orchestra sounds uh as good as i think it does and the uh closer is uh, people as sung by Leah Michelle very, mm-hmm. very beautifully, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adam Feldman went back and re reviewed Funny mm-hmm. Girl and gave it uh, a very good review. I wonder if uh, there's going to be a push back for the reviewers to come back and re- review Leah Michelle, or if, uh, you know, especially in the cold winter months when they want to sell more tickets, and mm-hmm. uh, if they'll show up on the Tony Awards and do a number on the Tonys. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to wait to see what happens there. Mm-hmm. So on behalf of Jenna Tessa Fox, Michael Portantier, and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Lovers are very special people. Person, one very special person, a feeling deep in your soul says you were half, now you're whole. No more hunger and thirst, but first be a person who needs people. Son, who needs feedback?